Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Good morning. I am, uh, I'm so grateful for the worship team. As you know, Al's been away. His, his dad uh, passed away this past week, and he's been up in Canada with him, and our prayers are with him. And we're also grateful for the worship team just stepping in and putting it all together during the week. So, shout out. I've, I've jokingly referred to Al, who though he is only, I think, 42 or 43, has been uh, by my side here doing this for 20 years uh, since uh, he was a, a very, a very young man, and he's become something of a security blanket for me. So I kind of know, like, stuff gets done. And I was sitting over there in a moment of panic. I'm like, is somebody going to remember to bring my podium over? Or will I have to go grab it myself and walk over? These guys got it. I mean, everything, everything together. Look at them. So... So we are uh, starting a new series uh, that kind of traces the way to the cross and to the resurrection four weeks from now. Because in the time leading up to the cross, that story that represents the center of our faith, it were these other stories, these, these moments of, of, of odd mystery. Uh, feet and perfume and tears in a garden and a temper tantrum in the temple. All of these things, these stories take place in that, in that moment leading up to, they set the stage for for the cross and for the resurrection. And, and in the moment, they independently seemed odd, mysterious. Like, why is he doing this and what's happening here? But the friends of Jesus, who had become the biographers of Jesus, would later on, in hindsight, look back at the crucifixion and the resurrection and the events in the days that preceded them, and they would have one of those aha moments where it suddenly started to make sense. And so they record for us the stories as they happen. And I thought we might lean into those stories for what they teach us that culminates in the cross and in the empty tomb. So to set the stage, we begin in Matthew chapter uh, 21 with this familiar passage. This will just set the stage for the next four weeks, though it sits at the beginning of what we call the Passion Week. And it's familiar. You'll remember this. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 6, it begins. And it says, The two disciples did as Jesus commanded, and they brought a donkey and a colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. And we remember this as, as Palm Sunday. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And Jesus was at the center of the procession, and all the people around were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Blessings 
on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. And the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jerusalem was preparing for Passover and the city was jammed. It would grow to five times its size, sort of like Falmouth on Road Race Sunday, right? You, you skip the restaurants, you go on vacation. I mean, everybody was there. But the city was also a, a hot spot of tension, of conflict. If you're a little familiar with the story of the New Testament, you'll know that during the life of Jesus, Israel was a conquered nation. Rome was their overlord, but they would give a certain amount of self-control within parameters. So in Jerusalem, you had the Jewish leaders, which were the religious leaders, but they were subservient to the Roman overlords, and they chafed against it. They, they wanted to overthrow it, and so everywhere there was tension and heat and conflict. And here comes Jesus marching into the city, and the people think, finally, our Savior is here. But they weren't thinking of a religious Savior. They were looking for a military man, and they are praising him as such. But that's Palm Sunday, and we're not there yet. Here's what happens immediately next. In verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So the, the surface reading of this, the way we maybe just quickly pass by it, is that Jesus was going into the temple and, and commerce was happening People were buying and selling and making a profit, and this was contrary to the nature of the temple. And there may be some overtones of that, but that doesn't really get to the issue. They were buying and selling animals for sacrifice. It was the week of the Passover, and you would come and you would offer a sacrifice, but it had to be an unblemished sacrifice, and it was impossible to travel from far distant lands and bring that sacrifice with you. So there had been a system set up where they could, they could purchase animals. It was a legitimate part of the system that had been created. Only recently, the sale and purchase of those animals had moved from outside the city to inside the walls of the temple area. And they couldn't just buy it with all this disparate money. They, they would have to exchange their money for temple coinage, and then they could buy it. But all of this was a, a legitimate part of the system. There, there doesn't seem to be any conflict in that, except for maybe some were abusing the system. No, there's something, there's something more here than meets the eye. And it's in that word, den of thieves. It's an odd turn of a phrase, den of thieves. We wouldn't 
immediately know what that means. We think we do. We think, oh, these guys were charging too much money. Maybe, but if you were living then, you would know exactly what a den of thieves was because in the culture in the day, it was a phrase that was used to refer to a specific group of people, revolutionaries. You see, all through the city, there were pockets of revolution. There were zealots who wanted to overthrow the Roman government, and they would literally gather in caves outside the city. And history tells us they were referred to over and over and over again as dens of thieves, a den of thieves. And here Jesus comes into the middle of the temple courtyard, and he overturns the table and he calls them a den of thieves. At least we know this. The people hearing would have thought, oh, we thought he was part of the revolution. Jesus didn't come to be a part of their revolution. So what's happening here? A picture might help. When we see pictures of the temple, and maybe you've seen uh, paintings or drawings of them, Jesus is inside of a building and it's close quarters and there's battles happening and there's tables turned and chickens flying and you've seen the pictures. It probably didn't look exactly like that. The temple was actually 33 acres of land. It was massive. The circumference of it was a mile around. And Jesus was now with those buying and selling who were at the corner of the Gentile courtyard, the very outskirts of the temple, probably the only place Jesus could have pulled this off. He goes to this corner of 33 acres of land where they're buying and selling, and then he does something inexplicable. He turns over the tables, and, and for a moment, he ruins everything. I mean, that's what he did. Jesus couldn't have gotten into the temple. The, the temple guards, the religious leaders, there were plenty of them to stop this rabble-rouser. But nobody had their eyes on those who were selling sacrifices. So Jesus does this. He flips over the tables. For a period of perhaps a few hours, he brings the entire system of sacrifice to a close. For a few hours, he shuts down the work of the temple. <laughs> so what's happening here? Here's what I think is happening. Jesus is offering a living parable. He's doing something that will show them what is about to happen. He's overturning the system. He's saying, this place was supposed to be where people met God and you have turned it into something else. And I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to replace all of this. I'm going to end the system of sacrifice with my sacrifice. Do you see the parable? Nobody would have gotten it in the moment. Jesus, what's up? 
Did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed today? You've never, you've never like gotten angry and flipped tables and gone all, you know, off. But after, after they would look back and go, ah, huh. you know, remember when he flipped the tables and for a few hours there were no more sacrifices. Jesus was showing them that through him, he was going to once and forever change the system. There are, in the verses that come after this, I think two lessons for us. And I want us to just kind of lean into those lessons. They come sort of after the story. Let me read to you verse 14. You've probably read it before, if you've read this passage. And probably, if you have read it, passed right over it. Here's what it says. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame. Well, that doesn't seem all that odd. Jesus had been doing this all along, the blind and the lame. This was Jesus' specialty, the blind and the lame. Only here, it had never happened. You see, that specific phrase, the blind and the lame, would once again mean something then that we don't quite pick up on because it was the blind and the lame who were forbidden from entering the temple. That's right. Up until this moment, they weren't welcome. In fact, this goes all the way back a thousand years. And if you want to read up on it later, you can go to 2 Kings Second uh, Samuel, I think it's in chapter 8. Um, a thousand years before, David has become the king of the unified nation of Israel, king of Judah and Israel together. And he wants to bring the nation together once and for all under his kingship. And he needs to establish a, a capital one that won't be controversial to either side. And so he goes for a new place. He picks a, he picks a city that sits right on the border between Judah and Israel. It's a little city. It was called Jebu, which literally simply stood for the Jebusites. And as David goes there to conquer this, this small but fortified city, it sat on kind of a, a, a rock outcropping, and it was walled in, and they heard that David was coming to conquer them, and the people mocked him. They said, he can't conquer us. Our walled city is too great. So they send David a message. They taunt him. They said, our lame soldiers could beat you. We've set our blind out to watch for you. <laughs> but David knew something they didn't know. David knew that the source of any walled city's security was their water. 
And the water came from outside the city, but was served by a tunnel. In fact, in the late 1800s, they found this tunnel. And David would send his soldiers through that water supply, up that tunnel, into the city where they would conquer it. And that would become the capital city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And out of that moment came the saying, the blind and the lame are not welcome here. And for a thousand years, that was the way it had been until Jesus showed up. Because Jesus did what he had always done. He welcomed the blind and the lame, the sick and the sinner, the broken. This is what Jesus did always. Jesus was making room for the broken. And there's a lesson in here that Jesus is saying, my kingdom will be open and welcome to everybody. The broken, the sinner, the sick will come and they will find life. That's what Jesus was doing. And in this living parable, he's starting to lay out this story of what would be, what could be, for the blind and the lame, the sick and the sinner, as they all came together to find life in Jesus. Which brings up a point about making room for the broken. It's a point for us. It's a point for us as a church, and it's a point for you and for me. So here's the question. Do you love broken people? Tough question, right? Do broken people ever make you angry? They do me. Sometimes broken, angry, different, difficult, obnoxious, different, did I already say different? Different. People annoy us. Broken people do broken things, and broken things... You're thinking of someone right now, aren't you? Because that's what we do. We, 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 broken people make us angry. We, you know, it could be your spouse, it could be your kid, it could be your parent, it could be your coworker, your boss, your employee, your friend, your neighbor, it, just about anybody, the person you're sitting right next to in church. You might be looking at them. And, because... Because broken, broken people do broken things. And <laughs> do you love broken people? It's harder than it sounds. Some of you know we got a we got our first dog. I held out for twenty nine years of marriage, and then COVID hit, and we got a COVID puppy. She's eating everything. Shoes, hats, golden doodle, special golden doodle. Oh, she is, she is absolutely 100% Tammy's favorite. There is no question, there's no debate. Husband, kids, we've all been replaced. So the other day, Ruby, who we call Rue, <laughs> was out in the backyard and we see her digging. She's digging in a flower bed. And she's digging for all of her life. And she's just so... And then we see her come up out of the ground with something in her mouth. 
it was gray and it was wiggling and alive. And she was so happy. I mean, she just was prancing around the yard and this, it looked like she had found like a, a nest of like moles or something and she's just prancing around the yard and she's got it like a trophy in her mouth. And so we were horrified or at least Tammy was horrified and the girls and they were like, we gotta, we gotta save it. And they're, they're out and they're trying to corner her in the backyard and I'm just watching. I'm not helping. I'm like, and she came in and I said, Akuna Matata. <laughs> like it's the circle of life, right? I mean, it's just like, it's horrible. Like she's, you know, our our golden doodle turned into a predator. And and there was this there was this conflict in us because because the next morning she woke up and the first thing she did is she started scratching at the door and she was just like at the door she couldn't wait to get out and dig in the hole and we went and looked and there were more and we had to rescue them before we let her out and she just was she just she hasn't stopped looking for them. She's a predator, a golden doodle predator. It's in her nature. It's what she wants to do. And I can promise you, as horrified as we were, we don't hate her. You say, well, what does that mean? I'm like, <laughs> broken, broken people do broken things. You and me, we, we, do, we do broken things. The people we work with, the people we work for, the people who work for us, our neighbors, our friends who go to church with us, our friends who would never go to church, we do broken things. And Listen, the church is not meant to be a castle that we build a moat around. That, that's not what we are. It's a, it's a, we're a hospital. That's what the church is meant to be. And we're not, our job's not to build a moat. Our job's to drive an ambulance, right? It's like, hey, how can we be a place that like Jesus makes room for the broken? And how do I do that in my life so that I don't become consumed with horror and anger because my golden doodle is walking around with something stuffed in its mouth? I might go rescue what's in its mouth. We did. Some of them, some didn't make it. But we know that, we know this, we know that in us is a nature, a nature that is broken and leans towards brokenness. And Jesus is saying, make room for the broken, because in my kingdom, this is for everyone. The blind and the lame, a living parable. There's one more thing in this passage that I, I want to I point out. The next verse, verse 15, says the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. Let me just pause here for a moment. If you're somewhat familiar with reading the story of Jesus, you know that Jesus encountered religious leaders, most often the Pharisees, over and over and over again. Let me tell you what the Pharisees are like. Pharisees are like social media critics. They're everywhere and they had very little power. This was a different group of cats. Jesus has now gone into the city of Jerusalem. He had avoided Jerusalem because he knew Jerusalem is the end game. Jerusalem is where the guys who can kill you 
live. And this is them. The leaders of the temple, the leading priests and teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and, watch this, heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. You see what's happening here? Jesus has made a scene. All the sacrifices have stopped. But the good story is just beginning because he starts healing the blind and the lame and they're flooding in and the children are watching these miracles take place and the children can't help themselves. They start, they start singing songs and celebrating. And that just infuriated the leaders of the temple. But the leaders were indignant. And they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? These children are giving you messianic authority. Stop them. Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. <laughs> Jesus, in this moment, doubles down to the very people who could kill him on who he was. Hey, hey, stop those kids. You tell those kids that's not true. You tell them you're not the Messiah. That's, that's blasphemy. And instead... Jesus doubles down. Yep. The end game is here. We're a week away. That's who I am. And don't you remember the prophets? The prophets in Psalms said that this would happen. And Jesus doubles down, and they doubled down, and they would kill him temporarily. That's another story. But in this moment, <laughs> no, in this moment, Jesus is declaring who he is. You see, at the center of our faith is Jesus. That's the lesson. Just take all your chips put him on Jesus. Double down on Jesus. At the center of our faith is Jesus, plus nothing else. It's Jesus. That's where our confidence is. You see, Christianity is built on a simple premise that Jesus Christ has come to dwell in you. We've been talking about that lately. And that when he dwells in you, he changes you. He transforms you. You become different and better. You become a little bit like him. And people are supposed to notice. People are supposed to be able to look at you and see Jesus. They're supposed to be able to look at me and see Jesus. And they don't always. 
Jesus gets deluded with a lot of things in our life. Bad things like anger. Sometimes we're just so angry at the brokenness and the broken that our anger just it clouds the picture of Jesus. But Jesus gets deluded in lots of things. He can, listen, Jesus can, you can, you can take Jesus and kind of mix him up with positive self-help thinking. You can mix him up with patriotism. You can mix him up with bad stuff. You can mix him up with, with uh, new age philosophy and Mother Earth. And you can mix him up with, uh, with, with Eastern religions and all that goes along with that. But we're deluding. We're taking away from Jesus and we're making him something less. And he's not visible. They can't see Jesus. And Jesus needs to be kept separate and on top always. Because it's Jesus that changes lives. It's Jesus alone. I don't know, but we come from lots of different towns. I happen to live uh, in Falmouth, near where the church is at, and our town put a ban on water bottles. I'm not going to make a political statement about that. I want to save the environment, but I love, I love water in a bottle. Is that a political statement? It might be. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the problem is, like, like I think, I think Mashpee's still cool, um, but so... <laughs> I'm, I'm totally, people are filling out connect cards already. I can see it. <laughs> Listen, I'm cool with it. I really am. But, but so, so here's what's happened. Like, you go to a store, and, and, and I still forget sometimes. I say, hey, can I get a bottle of water? I'm sorry, we're not allowed to sell water. So what, what they've done is they've, they've decided that they can sell, as long as you add something to the water, you can sell it. Oh, carbonated water? You can sell carbonated water. Fruit-flavored water, you can sell it. Sugar in your water, you got it. <laughs> Caramel-colored killing cancer agent, you can sell it. I mean, uh, I'm, all joking aside, I'm, I'm cool with it, I'm cool with it. I just drive to Mashpee. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. Sometimes I just want water. I don't want bubbles. I don't want fruit flavor. I just want water. It's hard to separate those things. Now listen, I don't care where you are in that band. It's fine. If you, if you voted for it, love it. I'm moving to Mashpee, but no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Here's what I am saying. When, when we add anything to Jesus, I don't care how good it is well-intentioned it is. When you add something, when you add your church to Jesus, when you add your pastor to Jesus, you add a religious leader to Jesus, don't do it. Listen, listen, I, I want people to know one thing. I want people to know that it was Jesus who saved me and Jesus who changed my life. It ain't my church. It ain't my pastor. It ain't my friend. It ain't this. It wasn't self-help. I didn't pull myself up by my bootstraps. I met Jesus and Jesus changed my life. Listen, man, 30, 30 years later, and I, I've shared this with you, 30 years later, you know, well, it's actually more than 30 years. I mean, but I, I, we've been married 30 years at the church 30 years. I'm amazed at how Jesus is still changing my life. 
I figured at 30, I would have arrived. I only arrived at discovering I hadn't arrived. Like there was like all this work that could be done and so much that he was changing in me and what I'm discovering is it's just Jesus. And here's all I'm saying, double down on Jesus. Don't, don't, don't mix him up with self-help. Don't, don't add this, don't add that. Just like keep it very clear and keep Jesus on top. It's Jesus who saves us. He's the one who transformed us. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who rose from the grave. And he doesn't need to be diluted with bubbles or fruit flavor or anything else that we might think would make it better because Jesus alone is the one who comes and dwells in us and through the miracle of the new birth and it's a miracle like through his resurrection and the new birth he dwells in us and he begins to change us and people see that change and they're like my goodness how and your only answer is Jesus that's it Jesus And on this day, in a temple, <laughs> Jesus is living out a parable about who he was and what he was about to do and how it would change the world. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're living it out too. Would you bow with me? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'm going to invite you to do two things. One, You may, you may be able to look back over the course of your life and you can look and you can see where you met Jesus and he changed your life. But life is long and difficult and complicated and it gets mixed up with lots of stuff. And maybe you just need this moment just to sit there and to say, Jesus, thank you. It's you. It's only you. It's always been you. And if that's you, then I just take this moment, double down on Jesus in the decision you made to invite him into your life. And maybe you're here or you're watching online and you, you haven't yet said yes to Jesus. You've been reading about him, listening to stories about him. You came here and even sang about him. Or maybe you watched other people sing about him. But you sense he's calling you Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in. I'll come in. And I'll dwell with them. He comes in to save us. If that's you, then in the quiet of this moment, I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus, to invite him in to take his gift of forgiveness for sin and sickness, brokenness, as your gift. If that's you, let me lead you in a prayer. I want you to know it's not my words that save you. 
It's not even your words. It's Jesus. And he hears the prayer of faith. So I invite you to pray that prayer of faith from your heart in your words. You might pray something like this, Dear God, I ask for your forgiveness once and for all. I trust you, Jesus. I believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose from the tomb so I could be saved. And today, I say yes to your gift of grace, of forgiveness for my life. Help me, Lord, now to live my life fully for you. Come and dwell in me and transform me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this message from our current series. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to meet you in person. We have services every Sunday at 10 a.m. in East Falmouth, Massachusetts, or join us for our Sunday live stream on YouTube at the same time. If you enjoyed the Cape Cod Church podcast, we hope you'll consider leaving us a review so that other people can discover us too. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode.